no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. What a glorious, glorious gospel. I invite you now to bring my notes up here to me. You have too many, too many things to do today. Um, now, um, to turn to the Gospel of John um, in chapter 17. So these uh, last several chapters from John 14 to 16, our Lord taught his disciples really the cost of following him, which is a high cost. It, it means something to follow Jesus. It, it, it costs something to follow Jesus. It doesn't cost for you to earn your salvation, but it does, it does require something he calls us to. But at the same time, Jesus comforted them with promises that would enable them to persevere through those trials. And whatever the cost may be, he gave them great promises to comfort them in the midst of uh, the life that they were being called to live. And among those promises we looked at uh, was the promise that in the very beginning in 14, you remember, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I am, you will be with me as well. This was a great promise of comfort to them. Uh, he also promised them that he would not leave them alone, but he would send them the helper, the coming Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would, would come to protect them and to guide them and to lead them. And the Holy Spirit would um, really go before them to, to prepare the way for the gospel, for the work that they were called to do. And then he, he promised God's love for them in a world that hates them. So they're living in a world, they know the world hates them, but, but Jesus reminds them that God will and does love you as his own. And he says, you are also to love one another. And so this promise of God's abiding love to them. And then he told them, and, and in the midst of your trials and your tribulations, and specifically when I depart and leave from you, one of the things I promise you is that you, your sorrow in that moment will turn to joy. And it'll turn to joy because they will behold and lay their eyes on the risen Savior, and that sorrow will be turned to joy. And of course, that applies to us too, because right now we don't behold and see Jesus physically before us, but one day he's coming, he's going to come to return and to bring us home, and in that day when we see the return of this King of glory to receive us home, all of our sorrow will be wiped away and there will be nothing but joy remaining. Even now, we can have that joy in, uh, to an extent in, in Christ. And so, he then promises them free access to the throne of God. He says, you're living in this world, but I want you to know that you have access in prayer to come before God. That not only do you have the Holy Spirit, but you can come before me in prayer to beseech 
God, to ask of God and to receive what you need from, from God. And finally, we saw in those two chapters the promise of peace and victory through Jesus. When it's all said and done, whatever this life throws at us, however many battles we lose with sin or with sorrow or anxiety, the fact of the matter is Jesus Christ has won the war. You're going to lose battles, but your victory is through Jesus because he rose again. And we need not, we need not fear or be anxious. All of these arguments that Jesus gave to us, all of these promises, Jesus' aim was that he would raise the hearts and the minds of his disciples to a better hope that he would set their hearts and their minds on, on one thing. And that thing is on the splendor and glory of his reign. He's saying, whatever happens in the world, raise your hearts and raise your minds to think upon the, the glory and the majesty of the fact that when I go to the cross and die, you will know that I am exalted and lifted and reigning above. And, and this was meant to lift them to this better hope. Because let's face it, in this world, this is why we read Colossians 3, in this world, no matter what you set your hope on, it's going to fail you. It's going to fail you a hundred times over. Put your hope on anything in this world, and you will find that it does not provide. But set your hope on Christ, and you will have a hope that endures forever. It's a summary of 14 to 16. In chapter 17, our Lord offers us one more comforting lesson before he goes to the cross, as he gives himself to prayer. This has been called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And what this prayer does from, from one perspective, it, it reminds them that, that it is from God that their help comes, and it is from God that fruitfulness comes. As Jesus goes up to God in prayer and praises God and thanks him, uh, it, it's a reminder to us as we watch Jesus that Jesus is saying, I know that, God, my help comes from, from you. It, it also provides them confirmation that as Jesus lifts himself up in prayer before his Father in heaven, all that Jesus said and all that Jesus taught and all that Jesus did, the miracles, he's saying, I'm from God, I've come from God, I am God, and all the things I've done are in God's name and in the power of God because he is uh, the Son of God, and this is confirmation in this last day that as he lifts his heart in prayer before them, that it's confirmation that it's all true. Everything that I've said to you is true, my beloved disciples. Confirmation, and it's true. He wants them to know. He wants them to know this now because he's going to go to the cross to die, and he wants them to know that this is God's will. So it provides them that. And finally, 
it sets before them God's glory as the great aim for their life in ministry. And in this prayer that, that Jesus prays, you will see the word glory come out numerous times. And the reason that Jesus is praying is because not only does he want it to be their aim in their life and ministry, the, the glory of God, but Jesus' aim and uh, in his life and his ministry and everything that Jesus did, you'll hear some people say, and, and there was one hymn that came out, I don't remember the name of it, but it says that, and, and I, I um, show the whatever the hymn is, Grace and who wrote it, I'm not attributing anything bad to the individual, but it just tells you how our words sometimes can misrepresent something. It's a hymn that says, uh, above all Jesus thought of me, right? I, I don't know what the hymn is, but, but I, every time I heard that hymn, that song, and I thought about it, and I thought, no, I don't think that's right. I don't think that above all things, did Jesus think of us when he laid down his life and give his, yes, of course he did. He loved us. He laid down his life for us. But he did not think about us above all things. What consumed Jesus above all things is found in the very first five verses of this prayer, which is uh, the glory of God. All that Jesus did was done for the glory of God and the glory of his name. And, and if that drives Jesus in his life and ministry, how much more do you think we, who are the recipients of that grace, how much more should that consume us? God's glory. And that has implications for all kinds of things for us. Implications for how we live, implications for what we believe, and so on. God's glory is to consume us as it did for the Lord Jesus. And so that is what is on Jesus' heart as he lifts up this prayer as our high priest before God. He begins by focusing on the, the glory of God. And, and so this prayer, we're not going to go through the entire prayer. We'll go through the first five verses. But if you wanted to break it down traditionally and look at it in sections, um, it can be broken down in really three parts. Jesus first, in verses 1 to 5, prays for himself. 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And 20 to 26, Jesus prays for the church. Now, we're going to read the whole prayer in a moment here, but I think I have to say one more thing is that this does serve the purpose of teaching these disciples those lessons. But this is also a prayer that gives us a very intimate view into the heart of Jesus. And I think that's what makes me tremble most uh, when I have to go and, and have to teach this prayer. Because let's put it this way, we are, we are listening to a communication between the Godhead, right? God the Son to God the Father. 
a, a prayer of intimacy, of a kind of relationship that we know nothing about. Like that relationship between the Father and the Son is, is so close and it's so pure that there are bound to be things in this prayer that we do not have the mind to understand. It, it, is, it is so rich and it is so deep uh, that I feel like we are entering into this divine conversation that we really have no business listening to, but at the same time, Christ allows us to listen in. And that is a huge privilege that we have. Um, but there are some, there are some things here that uh, we cannot fully understand and exhaust. But there are truths that we can learn. And as I said, the first truth is that Jesus is concerned about the glory of God. Verses 1 to 5. But let's hear the whole prayer and then ask for God's blessing. Let's hear God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, all the things we just looked at or summarized, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. 
I do not ask for these only, but also that those for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have just read your prayer to the Father, and we are humbled that you would enable us to listen in on your conversation Lord, I ask that as I seek to explain some things about this prayer of yours, that you would continue to show me grace and mercy as I proclaim your word in this jar of clay. Bless your people. Help us to to see you more clearly and to to rightly understand our place before you. We thank you for giving us this picture of your heart and your desire to please the Father in heaven. We thank you for how we see you are consumed and desire the glory of God in all things, and rightfully so. We ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. So you'll notice here as as Jesus begins his prayer, John says, John must have noticed this as he looked at Jesus, but he says that Jesus, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus may have been on earth, But to lift up his eyes to heaven tells us that in the affections of Jesus, the affections of his heart and his mind, he lifted up his eyes to heaven because his heart was there as opposed to here on earth. You see, Jesus was far away, if you will, from home. Jesus had in his heart to return to that place from where he came when he descended to take on flesh and to come onto the earth. 
And he wanted, in his heart and in his desire, he wanted to go back home, to be in God's glory, that, that glory of God that was veiled when he took on flesh. In Philippians, Paul talks about Jesus coming in and laying aside his, his glory to come and to take the form of a man and to veil that glory of God in. And now that Jesus is tabernacling among us, he is dwelling among us in this body, Jesus' desire as he lifts up his eyes, his affection is to go back. And it doesn't mean that he is going to go back to now de-incarnate in the sense of, take away his body. No, Jesus has come and he has taken on flesh, but he is forever in that body. And as fully God and fully man, Jesus' desire now is to go back into the glory that was his before the world began to go up. And so he lifts his eyes up to heaven to address his, his father in heaven. I don't think we can even begin to understand what it means for that longing for Jesus to be there because we have never been there in the glory and the presence of God. But what we do know is this about God, is that in God's presence, there will be no sin present. We do know that no one who has sin and is a sinner and is not forgiven and washed of their sin, no unclean person or thing will ever be in the presence of a holy and glorious God. To be in God's presence is to be where the angels are singing, pure angels of joy and gladness and thanksgiving, to be in God's presence is to be in a place where darkness does not dwell. There is no darkness, but it is the full brightness of his light and his glory and his purity and his beauty. Of all who God is and all that he is, to be in that presence, Jesus knows what it is. And Jesus' desire is to go back, to go back, and to be in the presence of, of God. But there's, there's another thing, though, that I, that I want to convey here. And, it, and it's this, is that when Jesus lifts his eyes and he prays to the Father, we, when I say the word glory, if you're like me, part of your thinking is that it's, boy, it's something other. And it's magnificent, and, and I can't even fathom it, and I can't even begin to relate to it. Is, is that not true? Like a glory is just so beyond. But the, the beauty of this in Jesus lifting his eyes before them to heaven and then addressing the Father is that while we feel that way about glory, the fact of the matter is that the glory of God is, is, is personally offered to us. Like there, there's a personal nature to God that he can be communed with. And, and the, the way that I thought about this is 
Uh, a couple years ago, my, our family went on a trip to the Grand Canyon. I don't know how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon. But we went on this trip, and we were looking at the Grand Canyon. And I told Nancy after when we were leaving, it was time to go, and we had stayed a couple days there. And, and I said, it, it's weird because I, I see the Grand Canyon, and it really is glorious. Like, it, it's, so, it's so big. Like, you, you can't even you can't see the entirety of it, but as I'm walking away from the Grand Canyon, I keep wanting one more look. I, I just, I'm walking away, and I'm looking like, man, it's like you just want to keep looking back because it's just so, it's just so beautiful, right? And, you, and you're leaving, but you want to look back, and you want to take it in, and, and what I thought, and I realized is that the difference with the there's a lot of differences, but one of the differences with the glory of, of the Grand Canyon, if you will, is that the Grand Canyon is there and it, it, it can be admired. But the Grand Canyon doesn't love me back. The Grand Canyon, as glorious as it is, it doesn't know me. It, it, doesn't, re, it doesn't draw me in out of out of a love for me and a desire for me to be in, in the Grand Canyon. But the glory of God does. God's glory is that you would come and to be in his presence and to know him and to love him and to be loved by him, to have a personal relationship with the King of glory that he would invite you in. And when we see Jesus lift his eyes up to heaven and address the, the Father of glory, he is addressing this glorious God the Father, and he has a relationship with him that he desires us through him to, to have. God is not just to be admired from a distance. God does not call us just to think high thoughts of God. He doesn't call us just to, to realize that God is other than us and greater than us. And he's someone up there that I can't be with and I can't know. And so I'm just going to content myself to be and to say that God is glorious. Let him be and I'll just live here by myself. No. God is glorious, and that glory means that he is a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of peace and a God who wants to share his glory with you. And Jesus knows this, and Jesus prays for this. He prays, you notice what we read, that we, that we might see his glory. What a gracious, gracious God. And, and the thing is, is that when you, when you look at the Old Testament, this is the same glory that we see plastered throughout the Old Testament. So when, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, into the glory and the presence of God. When, when uh, 
He was hid in the cleft of the rock, and he, and he asks God, remember he says, Lord, can I see your glory? And, and what did God say? God said, you know what? I, you can see my backside, but my, my glory you shall not see and live. And he puts him in the, in the cleft of the rock, and he protects him, and he, and he passes by, and he says his name. And I am a God of uh, faithfulness and steadfast love and mercy. And he, pre he, he presents his name. But M Moses can't quite really take and, and really be in that full presence of the glory of God. He can, for a short time, see his backside. And even in that, when Moses comes down the mountain, remember his, his face is shining like the people have never seen because he, he saw somewhat of the glory, the glory of God. And when, when the tabernacle is filled with the glory of God in Exodus 40, and then in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has that vision of the temple, and the, the temple is filled with the glory of God, and Isaiah can hardly take it, and it's, it's pouring out the temple door to temple, and his robe, the train of his robe is filling the temple with glory, and, and Isaiah can hardly even even take in this vision of the glory of God, and he gets a little glimpse of it. And, and Ezekiel trying to explain the glory of God, and, and he can't explain it. It's wheels of fire. It's turning. It's twisting. I don't even know how to convey the glory of God to you, Ezekiel says. And, and now Jesus is this glory of God, and he puts on flesh, and for a moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, he takes the, a few of his disciples up, and he lets them see a little bit of his glory. And what's their response when they see a little bit of his glory? Well, first you get the response of God the Father saying, this is my beloved son. And Peter says, we need to stay here. We need to build some tabernacles to stay here in the presence of the glory of God. Because to be in God's presence is to, to know him and to love him. But Jesus knows that he has to go to the cross. And so they... They have this glory, and it's dwelling in Jesus. And these Old Testament priests, they were, they were there because they were supposed to be concerned with bringing the people into the presence of God. Do you remember that? Their job was to, as Aaron and all the high priests, was to bring the people into the presence of God. And the first way that they brought people into the presence of God was first to prepare themselves. And so the high priest would prepare themselves to, to be able to come in God's presence, and then they would, they would want to bring their friends and their family into God's presence, and they would want to bring their neighbors into God's presence. And all the people of Israel, they wanted to bring into the presence of God to, to know him and his glory. But of course, what happened in the Old Testament is that these high priests fell short of bringing the people into the presence and the glory of God. They couldn't do it. As much as they tried, they fell short, and God's glory in his presence was always somewhat at a distance. But in Jesus now, the Lord of glory, he comes and he reveals himself in the flesh so that he might 
once and for all bring us into that glorious presence of God, fully. And he does that, Jesus says, because the final hour had come. He begins his prayer, Father, the hour has come. And he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus' prayer here and his concern is that he would receive that glory that was his from before the foundation of the world. So when he says, Father, glorify your son, the hour has come, he's, he is in one sense saying, I want to receive back now. I am ready to come back to receive all of that glory that was mine back through this hour that had, that had come. The hour had come for that to take place, and that hour that Jesus is referring to is the hour of the agony of the cross where Jesus, the great high priest, would lay down his life as an atonement for the sin of his people. That hour of Jesus had come where in his death, resurrection, and exaltation, we would behold the magnificent triumph of the cross where the curse of sin is blotted out, our sin sinners are reconciled to God, and Satan has been vanquished. This is that hour that God had promised in Genesis 3.15, and all of history was working toward where the Son would receive back his glory as Jesus conquers sin and death and goes back into heaven victorious. Jesus goes back to glory. The Father glorifies him in this way, but you know how else Jesus is glorified? He's glorified by you and me, beloved. We bring God glory, the Son glory, when sinners like us are redeemed by his blood. Sinners around the world offering praise and honor by men and women whose sin their great high priest Jesus had taken upon himself. The Father glorifies him when he lifts him up and takes him home, and we glorify him when we praise him and thank him for the forgiveness of our sin. Only this hour, it doesn't come with Jesus riding back into heaven on a chariot in the midst of the applause of men and women, does it? No, it comes with Jesus being lifted up in shame and suffering on a cross to die. The Son came and completed the redemption for which the Father sent him. And so you'll notice that Jesus not only says, glorify your Son, he says that the Son may glorify you. You see how the Father and the Son working together. The, the Father glorifying the Son but the Son, by his obedience and submission to the will of the Father, 
brings glory to the Father by submitting his life under the care and authority of God the Father and the Father's will. Because in the end, Jesus is not seeking the praise of men. You, you understand that. We're here to praise Jesus, right? Jesus lacks nothing if we don't praise him. Do you, you understand? You, you may never praise God and give him glory. And God lacks nothing. He is perfectly content in himself, in his glory, in his goodness, in his majesty. He lacks nothing. And yet this God who lacks nothing in himself reaches out in love to you and he says, come to me and enjoy my presence with you and you will, in response, praise this God of glory. And Jesus does this before the Father. He responds in obedience, and he brings glory to God the Father. And we ought to follow suit, beloved. Jesus accomplished, what Jesus accomplished clothes God in splendor, in the splendor of his love, grace, mercy, and justice. They're all seen in the life of Jesus. And the glory of the Father is no more clearly seen, more clearly displayed than in the salvation of sinners. So Jesus brings glory to God when Jesus brings sinners to salvation. This is what he says in verse 2. You have given, since you have given him that's Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The authority given to Christ when the Father appointed him to be king and head was not for himself, not an authority for himself, but for the sake of the salvation of God's elect, for you and I, beloved. This peculiar flock Jesus came to save and to guard as a shepherd. And therefore, we should submit to Christ not only that we might obey God, but because there's nothing more lovely than that subjection to, to Jesus. Because in subjecting yourself to Jesus and believing in him, you receive eternal life, right? What is eternal life? What is it? Jesus says that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they may know God. Not just intellectually, but that you might know God relationally that you might know him in a saving way. That you might walk with God in the garden, like Adam and Eve. That you would talk with him and commune with God, your maker. That, that you would be able to pray to him 
and ask of him things and, and have a relationship with him. This is eternal life, Jesus says, and that they may not only know the one true God, but that they would know Jesus Christ, his, his son, God incarnate. To know God in this way, beloved, is to be transformed and to be brought into a new life. To know God in this way means that you repent of your sin and you turn from rebellion against God and you turn to following God. It's to confess that you are a sinner, to confess that you can't get into heaven on your own and to throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus and to now follow him who is life. That's what eternal life is, beloved, and that's what Jesus came to bring. And God the Father gave him authority to accomplish all that work of redemption for the glory of God. That's what he says in verse 4. He accomplished this work that the Father gave him to do. Jesus came and brought glory to God by his life and ministry on earth, and his life was in perfect harmony with the Father. He did all that the Father desired him to do, and he did that so that he might bring glory to his name and go back in the presence of God. And so we, beloved, by faith in Jesus, we are grafted into his family. We are grafted into the family of God so that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One day, we'll be there. One day we'll see. We won't be hidden in a cleft of a rock, will we? We'll be hidden in Christ. And where Moses couldn't see the face of God and live, guess what? We will see the face of God. And we will see the face of God in Jesus Christ. And we will see all the glory of God that we have lost because of our sin because Christ has done it all, and this is what he prays. May God's glory be at the forefront of our hearts and minds this morning, beloved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that we've only scratched the surface and your relationship with the Father is so pure and, and so perfect that when we listen to this kind of prayer, we realize just how inadequate we are in ourselves. We know that we needed a perfect high priest, one who was better than Melchizedek, better than Aaron, 
more perfect than all of the priests of the Old Testament in order to bring us into the presence of the glory of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love and for your mercy in coming into this world that you might be that faithful high priest that we needed. We thank you that through you we have access into the throne room of God where we once did not belong, but you have torn down that curtain and you have given us access into the Holy of Holies. Lord Jesus, we thank you for interceding on our behalf, for praying to the Father, for obeying the Father, for serving the purposes of God's redemptive plan according to the will of the Father. Lord Jesus, though we could not walk with you while you were on the earth as your disciples did, we know by our own very lives of living in this world that it was not easy for you to go through this wilderness. Because for you, you knew no sin and there was no unrighteousness in you. And you endured all of it without sin. Oh, Lord Jesus, how we so quickly brush that aside because we walk in a world of sin and we are sinners and so we fail and give in to our sins so frequently, but you knew no sin and you maintained your perfection so that you might give your life to redeem us from our imperfection and our sin. Lord, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being loving. Thank you for your tender mercies towards us. Help us to keep your glory at the forefront of our hearts and our minds. Help us to see your glory as that which we need to pursue and come under and, and live according to it. Help us to be obedient children and faithful servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.